welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Motivated by the Long Game, Why a UBS Breakaway Left a Deal Behind for Independence with Summit Financial. It's a conversation with Monish Verma, Managing Partner, Varden Wealth Management. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. For Apple Podcast users, I'd be grateful if you'd give the show a review. Your input helps us to make this series better and alerts other advisors like you who may find the content to be relevant. And while you're at it, if you know others who are considering change or simply looking to learn more about the industry landscape, please feel free to share this episode or the series widely. There are so many great things about this breakaway story that we had a difficult time trying to pinpoint that one thing that was unique and buzzworthy. But the reality is that Monish Verma's break from UBS to independence doesn't have one special thing that we can share with you. It has dozens. Monish describes what is an incredibly instructive journey, starting with the thought process when considering change, on through to due diligence and decision-making, and ultimately how his choice to go independent is resonating today. A wealth management career that started in 1995 with Dean Witter, and later Morgan Stanley, Monish moved to UBS in 2009 with just $60 million in assets. As a sole practitioner, he set his sights on a path to grow the business and later added a sales associate. And it was that focus and a concerted effort to drive referrals that accelerated growth of assets under management to over $350 million. Monish is clear to share his gratitude for all that he was able to achieve at UBS, but one thing was lacking, autonomy. He wanted greater agency in how he served clients, grew the business, and hired team members, but he was limited by what the firm allowed. So he explored options in the landscape, coming close to choosing a transition deal with an outsized check, yet it was the strings attached that made him think twice. Instead, Monish was attracted to supported independence, an option from Summit Financial, and in May of 2021, he launched Varden Wealth Management and in the process, sold a portion of the business to gain equity in Summit, a move that he describes as a partnership. So why didn't Monish choose to go for the big transition deal? Why not launch his own RIA? Why sell equity at this stage? Monish answers all that and much more as he takes us through his journey to independence. So let's get to it. Monish, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Lewis. Thanks for having me. All righty. Let's jump in. Tell us about yourself and your background leading up to joining UBS. Great. Sure. I started in the uh, financial service world back in 1995, something that I thought about in the back of my head since I was a young kid. I went to college and then started my stint in law school, realized I didn't like it. And my my father reminded me that I always wanted to be a stockbroker. So he kind of directed me back into the right path for for me. And uh, back in 95 is when it started for me. Um, So I I was with Dean Witter and Morgan Stanley Smith Barney and made my way to UBS. Very good. And let's then talk about UBS. You built up an incredible business there. Um, can you describe to the audience what the team looked like, how much you were managing, and what types of clients you were serving at the firm? Sure. When I started over at UBS, I had a great experience there. I started with moving my book over at the time, which was around $60 million. It was myself and one service advisor working with me. During the 12 years that I was there, I am very proactive with coaching so I embraced coaching heavily. So I did go through some coaching programs and found my practice to really start to grow pretty extensively and rapidly, fortunately. I expended my practice staff to include one more uh, sales associate, 
who's now basically being my CFO and my CEO of my company. I hired and have a full-time strategist and planner on staff now and have one other client associate. So I started adding as I was growing. As I went through my coaching programs, I started, as I mentioned, growing my practice. So from the time I started at UBS, uh, around 60 million in assets, we left just over uh, 380 million in assets uh, back in May of this year. That's amazing. And what were one or two of the main learnings from your coaching programs that helped you catapult that growth? The various different programs hit on certain things. Some were integrated to a communication with your clients and your staff. On the staff side, we hold frequent daily conversations with each other so we understand what's going on with the market when with the economy and then with our staff and our clients. Uh, we spoke frequently together about different things we needed to be doing for our clients and connected with our clients in a very regimented um, program. We put together a team manual that defined not only to ourselves, but to our clients, our protocols, how and when we would be communicating, the structure behind it. I found our clients uh, love the idea and understanding of clarity of how we interacted with them and internally amongst ourselves. Um, and then we started growing our client base by targeting our spheres of influence, our centers of influence, and started to educate them on what kind of clients we best resonated with and best resonated with us. And as we started gathering those clients, we started trying to clone those clients by using interactive LinkedIn and uh, just having small sessions that introduced our clients to other clients. And then that kind of generated an idea of, uh, to our clients of who we kind of like to work with. And then our referability went through the roof. So all our clients came in through our other clients and our centers of influence. That's really interesting. So it seems like you're running a business within a business. Um, did UBS get in the way at all of you implementing some of these, I think, are pretty innovative ways of managing your team? You know, in the beginning stages, and the reason I chose UBS is the leadership really focused on this, like, we're their clients, our clients are our clients, this three-legged stool mentality. Bob McCann was really instrumental in that, in that philosophy at UBS and was a great leader and really encouraged advisors to thrive. I found that that direction was going a little bit away as the leadership changed. And it was really, we were kind of working for the firm, which was my intent going into this business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to make my decisions for my team. I wanted the support of our leadership, but I also wanted them to let me be autonomous and growing my practice the way I wanted to and how I wanted to. And for the most part, they did that. I will tell you my experience at UBS was great. I hold no regret working with them. They're a wonderful firm. But I just found that I needed a different level of autonomy that I wasn't provided in the wirehouses. And that's why I started making thoughts and ideas of maybe researching the path to independence. Was there a particular event or straw that broke the camel's back when you said, you know what, this just isn't the right place for me and I want to be independent? Or was it more just kind of a confluence of many things? Well, it was a culmination of a couple of things. One was really we were starting to get more restrictive of how the, the local management was allowed to invest in their advisors. So I wouldn't say that that was something that was coming from the market or even the branch management. But it was really coming from the leadership. An example of that is I always worked on a capacity level of where I wanted to make sure I had more support than I needed because I knew my growth model was always going to get to that level. And I fully embraced the idea of as an advisor investing in my practice and, and using my own resources for my team. But the struggle I had was really when I needed more support, it would take sometimes weeks or months to really allow UBS to present me people or to hire. It was very restrictive in that regard. So I really wanted that component to be more open and be less restrictive, whereas I knew what I needed and to some extent, my local management knew what I needed, but it was sometimes a challenge or a struggle to really get the right funding in place for us as growing advisors to get that support that we needed. So that was really one of the most prevalent items on my radar when I was looking at how can I do this differently? Because the one thing I did not want to sacrifice was the client service model and the experience that we wanted our clients to have with us. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That does resonate and seems similar to what a lot of our prior guests have felt prior to leaving the firm. Obviously a great place to build the business. You're doing really well. 
So the decision to leave wasn't an easy one because you could have easily just taken the path of least resistance and kept your head down. So let's let's move forward. We had the honor of representing your team in, in your transition. I am familiar with your due diligence process, but for the audience, can you walk us through how you thought about due diligence and what you looked at and what your criteria was for picking a new partner? Sure. No, I appreciate the, the question. So as I started going through this process of thinking about going independent, I started going back and talking to a lot of the recruiters and a lot of the people and a lot of the companies that had called me in the past and started having conversations with them. And then it kind of dawned on me as I've always embraced coaching. Uh, I've heard and spoken with your firm in the past on a very macro level. And I remembered how helpful those conversations were. So then I circled back and spoke with you and other people on your staff, Ali, and, and just found that that was a great experience to really help in my process of due diligence. So prior to engaging with your firm, I had talked to maybe anywhere up to about a dozen different RIAs out in the space, but I, would, I just wanted a constant message of clarity and consistency. And, and I had a fear of the, what I didn't know about this because it was my first time looking to go independent and you guys did this for a living. So I wanted to get your resources and your experience on my side so I could fully embrace the whole process. And that happened really well. So you you guys uh, at your firm introduced me to four different firm uh, RIA firms that were never on my radar. Summit was one of those firms and ended up being the one that I kind of went with and offered a lot of guidance along the way. So never telling me what to do or telling me where I should end up, but really listening and guiding me along that path to figure out what was important to me and then helping me make decisions of who to exclude from the list that finally whittled down to about three names and then finally whittled down to the one place that I ended up with, which was Summit Financial. And for the record, folks, this was not a paid testimonial. Um, <laughs> we very much appreciate that plug. Thank you for that. And we're glad that My our pleasure. services were, were value-add. So along the journey, I recall there was a particular independent firm that was offering you a pretty crazy check in order to move over and join their independent platform. How did you reconcile the financial side of it and turning down what would have been somewhat life-changing money? and still being independent? There's a firm out there that really came to me and really said that they had a platform in the RIA space that allowed advisors in the wirehouse to really move to independence, but still had a financial piece to it that was supportive of that. And I looked at them pretty heavily. I looked at the fact that I would have to be under their wirehouse per se name. I would still be clearing through them. I had no choice in that, in that piece of it. And as I did more due diligence, the people that I was working with were very, very good, very respectful, honored the thought that it was a process that I was going through. I never were, I would use the word bullying or anything, but just really walking me through the process. And part of that due diligence was finding out what this, this number was. And then one thing I would like to make clear is my move wasn't about the dollars and cents that would come into my pocket, but the experience my clients would have going forward and see if it could be broadened and be more expanded to be more customized. So my goal was to really find the next level for the client experience. As my clients were growing in size of assets and needs, I wanted to make sure I could accommodate that on their terms and my terms as far as I could. So I really wanted to find that kind of model. And when I was going through that process, they offered a fair amount of dollars. And I went through that process, interviewed with some other advisors who left and wasn't really impressed with the experience that those other advisors had. I was taken aback because I was remembering like, wow, this is who you want me to talk to? It sounds like if they would have asked the question, would you do it over again? The person would have said no. And I shared that with the firm and they were taken aback too. And they said, well, maybe we need to have you talk to another person. But what really kind of went through this process is they gave me this range of how much they wanted to provide me upfront capital. And I came in at the 120% of trailing 12, and they had a, a, a max of 125. So the obvious question is, why didn't I get 125? And so they explained whatever their reasons were, and I accepted that. But what really kind of pulled me back even more from them was a few months later, they came back and offered me almost a double. And so they thought I would be very happy with that. And I was very kind of concerned and said, you know, in October, if I would have agreed to go with you, I would have gotten X. All of a sudden, a few weeks later, 
in the early part of the year and now you're offering me why, which is substantially more, why would you do that? I would have been pretty upset if I joined in October versus now. So I think they kind of thought this would be the decision that broke the camel's back for me to kind of come over. But I'd always mentioned to them, as I had mentioned to everyone who was listening about my due diligence, that the motivator for me wasn't upfront capital. It was the long game. It was the opportunity to provide a better value add for the client. And I found that, unfortunately, they weren't listening as closely as I thought they were. So I exited conversation with them to, and continued to move forward and, and seek your assistance to really figure out other options. That makes sense. So it just it, it didn't feel right, even though they're offering you big money and you could have owned the business. Many would just jump at that because it's a pretty unique opportunity. Um, but through your own diligence, just kind of thinking about what you valued most, you ultimately landed on the fact that there's no such thing as a free lunch. And even though there is big dollars, if you're locked into a platform that wasn't your ideal fit, then you were wise for yourself and your clients to turn it down. I was hoping that was what my mind was telling me. And I was, I feel now looking back at the decision, which I know was right then, I still verify that it is right for me and my clients. Definitely. And did you ever consider just forming your own RIA? Certainly with close to 400 million in assets, you had a team behind you to take on some of the work. You likely could have just built your own firm. Did that ever enter your mind? It did. I honestly thought about it long and hard and then came to a conclusion that if I'm looking at my client's perspective and they have 20 or 40 or 50 million with me, how would that look from their eyes? And I think when I started really kind of peeling that onion back a little bit, I really wanted to make sure I still had a partner with me so they could see that it wasn't just my shop. It was a shop that's been cultivated over a number of years that had an infrastructure in place that I was still the primary decision maker. It was still my shop, but I had a platform or structure in place that was really, really robust and offered a lot. And I asked myself, is that the right way of doing things? I consulted some people that I felt were very close that were colleagues of mine that were thinking of potentially doing certain things and what they thought of it. And it made my mind up that really go to a route where you needed to make sure that you had a good platform in place and you didn't want to reinvent that wheel when the wheel was already invented. There was really some solid platforms out there like Summit. So I decided to just kind of not try to do it on my own per se, but still be my own person and my own boss and my own entity at the end of the day. What you're describing is this whole supported independent ecosystem, this cottage industry that's been developed to support breakaway advisors. And of course, you can do it on your own, but you'd made the decision that you'd be better served and your clients would by partnering and offloading some of the stuff that would have bogged you down and ultimately gaining more resources and scale than you can access on your own. I agree, Lewis. I go back to two things that are my passion. I love talking to my clients and, and looking at new opportunities for clients. That's why what drove me into this business was that opportunity of sky's the limit. And I enjoy working with my team, running, leading, maintaining a team, which I'm doing more so now than I did before in a warehouse. So those were my two things that I enjoyed doing. And I wanted to be able to have resources available to us to assist with all the things that were not in my talent pool, but make sure that they were done effectively and well. Yeah, well said. So ultimately, as you alluded to, your diligence process led you down the path of joining the RIA or affiliating with the RIA of Summit Financial and picking Fidelity Investments as your primary custodian. Can you explain just a little bit what you what you viewed as the value proposition for these two partners and ultimately what the appeal was, I guess, specifically about these platforms? We talked at a high level about the desire for support, but what specifically made Summit and Fidelity stand out from the rest? Sure. So let me talk first about Summit. So when I was talking with Summit, I had numerous conversations with their senior managers, and I felt that they wanted me as much as I was looking to be independent. So it was this resounding factor of, we want you, we understand you, we want to build with you, we want to grow with you. We have a platform that's what I found was bar none, one of the best in the industry. They had the best of the best as far as Salesforce goes, as far as eMoney, the platform, Adapar. They had a lot of 
they looked at and really did their homework on figuring out what is a good package that an advisor would want coming out of the wirehouse space. So I, I really was looking at that platform and it was very robust. The technology was great and their service model was great. They really had this open arms approach of wanting to work with myself and my team. That's what I felt and I still feel that to this day. I found it to be more of a business decision as more, or more of opening up myself to a new family and really embracing the whole management team with them. And they've been wonderful in that regard, not only to myself, but to my whole team. In that process, I sought their advice of looking at the different options for custodians. We had four different options we looked at. I interviewed or talked to all of them. And I found that I really narrowed my scope to Schwab and Fidelity. And between the two, I just found that Schwab had some internal growth that they were doing, which I didn't want to have any growing pains. That was a concern for me. I know Schwab is, a, is an excellent provider in the, in the space, but I definitely didn't want to be involved in any growing pains. And kind of what just came down to it is Fidelity resonated the same way Summit did. The experience that I had with the person at Fidelity, her name is Melissa, was that very welcoming. They're a multi-trillion dollar company, but I felt that it was a very warm, welcoming, we want you here. We love to have you. We want to grow together. Our platform is your platform. And it wasn't a corporate decision. It was an extension of that family decision. I really felt that embrace where they really wanted me to come and they wanted to service my clients and wanted to grow together. And they hit all of the right marks. They had great cybersecurity for online presence. Their platform was robust. They invested heavily in themselves to make sure the client experience was there. Everything that I was really kind of looking for, they had a platform if the clients wanted to borrow against their own assets. So they hit every check that we needed. And I did have some experience with them before using their donor advised fund models in the past. So the experience didn't go wrong. It went really well. The clients and I are now we're three and a half months into our transition and and Fidelity completely came to the table. Anytime there was a bump, and by, by all means, we had bumps on the road. We expected bumps, but I was glad to see was the action taken to smooth those bumps out by both Summit and Fidelity. And that made the transition smooth. When we had a concern or question, they addressed it. We came to a reasonable conclusion that we were always happy with, the client was happy with. And I think that's the, that's the moral of the story is like, you know, you're going to have a couple bumps, but how do you effectively breach those bumps was important to me. And as this team came, kind of came together, we found that it was truly a team effort to make sure the client experience was always the number one thing on everyone's mind. Yeah, that's very insightful. Thank you very much. One more question on, on Summit. So in the transition and leading up to the transition, what was their role in helping you to build the business? So their role, and it continues to be, is be completely open. I'm a very motivated and driven individual. That's why I'm in this business. And their and their job is to always hear me ask for things and find a way to say yes, which is, by the way, not a small feat coming from a wirehouse for over 25 years. Because in the wirehouse, we, we were getting to a point where we were hearing no all the time and sometimes struggling and fighting for a maybe. But here, the platform really is set up in such a way that we get a yes. And if we don't have a yes, we'll, like, we'll get a let's figure it out. And very seldom, if any, have I ever heard a no. So that's the most refreshing piece that I found. And that, gets to, that will be to a point where if we need a platform that wasn't there before for clients that have certain levels of wealth, that we need something that's different than what was on the platform, we get it. We ask for it, and two weeks later, it's there. It's not a like, well, this is why we did it this way, figure it out. It's like, you're right, you need it. If you need it, others need it, let's get it. And so they've been always willing and helpful to really push that envelope to figure out how to make the experience for the client better. I'll give you an example. I had an ultra-wealthy family in the West Coast that was kind of on the bubble because they've always worked with uh, wirehouses, Morgans, Merrills, you name it. They've always worked there and they didn't really have an exposure or experience working with an RIA. But the patriarch was open to having the conversation. On a Saturday evening around 6 or 7 p.m., I had our CEO of Summit calling in from the west side, uh, the east side of the country with me in the, in the mid Midwest region and then the client and their family on the West Coast having a one and a half hour conversation about what is Summit what is the culmination of where we are, where we're going, what is the components and how value add is the client experience. And that 
I don't think would happen often elsewhere where a CEO of the company would be willing to sacrifice an hour, hour and a half of their Saturday evening. But the mentality has always been whatever it takes. And, and Lewis, I got to tell you, they've come to the table multiple times with that philosophy and made it happen. So I got to tell you, I'm, I've always taken aback because this no mentality I've come, uh, I've grown up in to this absolutely yes or let's figure it out mentality is new and refreshing. I'm still learning how to really digest it, but it's still a wonderful experience for the client and for my team and myself. That's very gratifying to hear. And in joining Summit, you sold a portion of your business to an entity sponsored by Summit called Summit Growth Partners. Can you walk us through that transaction and what were your reasons for monetizing or selling a portion of your business when you did? Yeah, so that was something that was interesting because when I was going through my due diligence process, it wasn't quite on my radar to sell a piece of my practice. As I started having conversations with other people with due diligence and people with you and your staff, I was kind of figuring out what the pros and cons were of, of doing that. And I came to a conclusion that it was the right fit for me to do so. You know, take some chips off the table, but basically have a partner that's invested in me, but allow me to invest in them. So by taking some chips off the table, I actually am now a minority owner with Summit as well. So I own part of them and they own part of me. So my RIA, Garden Wealth Management, is 80% owned by myself and 20% owned by Summit, which puts us aligned on the same side of the table to the client experience. I am, they're not my vendor. I'm not their boss. They're not my boss. We're partners. And that, that strategy is paid off in client experience. The, the clients really understand and resonate the idea of you're part owner of them. They're part owner of you. You're a, a team working for us rather than a vendor. So that turned out to be a really good decision that kind of came onto the table. There was never pushed. They always said, we have two models. We can figure this out. We've offered both models to you. Here's how the economics work. If you decide to do it, here's how it would look. If you, if you don't decide to do it, no problem. We still would like to connect with you. So it was never pushed, but it was a great model. And it turned out to be a good decision for me because I did want a partner along the way. I didn't want it to just be kind of a vendor relationship. So my primary reason was to become partners with Summit on my uh, on my endeavor of, of being an RIA, and that's why I, I chose to do that. The, the event is really, as they grow, I grow, and as I grow, they grow. And that's where we're sitting on the same side of the table all the time. Yeah, so it wasn't at all about a monetization event. It was more about having a invested partner on your side. Yeah, because to me, a monetization event means getting cash and, and right. going earlier in the due diligence process. It wasn't my primary motivation to just receive a large check. But what they offered was equity in Summit for in turn equity in Varden. And that made us both partners going into this endeavor. And that's what really res kind of resonated with me. Whereas I wasn't basically just getting a note, I was getting a partnership. And, and I think uh, I've talked to some clients now who are executives who have created businesses and explained the models to them now that we were kind of in that transition when I was talking to them and explaining to them the process of who is Summit, who, who is Fidelity, who is Varden. And uh, they kind of like that idea of saying, okay, it's a true partnership. And I said, absolutely. That's what I was looking. I didn't know I was looking for that in the beginning, to be completely candid. But as, as it was presented to me and offered and I, I vetted it, and understood it and, and I sought your guidance and other people at your firm's guidance to just kind of walk through the math. I checked, I talked to my attorneys, my CPAs, and it just made to be a good business sense for myself and my clients. Yeah, it seems like it was the ideal fit. And sometimes the best opportunities come when you're not looking for them. Exactly. That's exactly what happened here. Let's talk a little bit about the transition. So obviously UBS is no longer part of the protocol for broker recruiting, which means your transition was non-protocol. Did this make the move scarier for you? And what was your strategy in going through the transition? Yeah. So first and foremost, I found it to be a very scary thought to get to the point where you wanted to leave and, and go independent. So I will tell you that that was definitely something that I found scary, but it was scary the day I, I resigned. Uh, and then as soon as I resigned and kind of went for the next step in this RIA world, which was to start looking at asking clients to join us, it became exciting 
and the thrilling. And uh, it was a great experience after that day. But it was concerning to me in the beginning about the, the non-protocol and how to really work through that. And uh, what I really did is, you know, retain counsel to really help me through that process. And that the, the counsel I had was invaluable with the attorneys that I had selected to help me through that. And one of the attorneys was really a referral from Summit who, who had been in this space. I wouldn't have found them on my own, uh, but really was instrumental in that, in that transition. You now have the benefit of hindsight. Do you think if it was a protocol move, meaning you could solicit your clients, you can take your protocol list, do you think the transition would have been more successful? I don't think we would have been more successful. I think maybe the angst I would have maybe had prior to making the move would have been alleviated, which would have maybe perhaps made the move earlier, perhaps made the decision to get to that point easier to get to, alleviate the time to get to where I am. But looking back, I'm glad I made this decision regardless, but I could see where if it was, you know, a non-protocol move or, uh, and we were able to have this definitive, you're allowed to do this, right? The mentality I took is, there's, are you allowed to do something or not allowed to do something? So I, in my mind, was doing something I was not allowed to do, right? That's just simple ease of how I'm thinking about it. So whenever you, when you're a rule follower and you're doing something that you've been kind of program not to do or allowed to do, you get a little bit more angst, right? So I think that's what I was dealing with. And I found a good solution and I found good counsel that said, we, we got you on this. It's happened before. I mean, there's been other advisors in my market that left and gone somewhere else and they thrived. And so I knew it was done and I knew we could do it. But I think that's where in my mind, it made it a little bit more problematic to make that decision. But Looking backwards, I'm glad we made it. Yes, we are asked the question, what's your regret? My regret was not making the decision earlier. Yeah. And now that you're independent, it's only been a couple of months, so I'm sure it's all, you're you're still drinking from a fire hose is what you can do now. But what are three of the top things that come to mind for what you can do differently for clients? Okay, I'll limit it to three. How's that? (laughs) The first is, you know, if we're looking at really a platform of opportunity for the client set is really the exposure and openness for alternative investments. In the past, you were told what you could use. Here, you have a robust list of what you can use. And if you want to do something different than that, they'll go figure it out for you and bring it to the table, meaning Summit and, and team. So the platform is very open architecture to the regard of alternative investments where we can actually look at things we weren't able to before. An example of that, opportunity zone investments. UBS had an option available, one and then another, one after the other. Here we have multiple options and we are showing clients multiple options to see which one suits their needs, right? That's one prime example of like the AI experience our clients are getting. So if we don't see something we like, we can ask and we can go get it. It gets properly vetted. We can look at not only the bigger monstrosity deals, but we can look at smaller deals properly vetted. So that's one space. The the structured note capacity here, I always thought it was great at the wirehouse. It's actually, in my opinion, better here because it's a, just a better platform, more robust. It's a platform that clients resonate with and I use in my practice, and it's just a better experience model for them. The planning, we used a good planning tool at UBS, but the planning that we have here is just a little bit more state-of-the-art. I think e-money allows us to really help our clients in a more meaningful way because we can watch their assets that is custodian elsewhere kind of flow in so we can see where their assets are and help them as a fiduciary now, right? Because I wasn't a fiduciary for my retail clients before, but as a fiduciary now, I feel that obligation and I can actually take advantage of that obligation by seeing where their assets are and helping make decisions in a more macro base for them rather than a more micro base for them. So those are just a few of the experiences that I felt. I'm really telling you right now that what's the big radar for me is the insurance piece of it. It's just really robust, and we're start, starting to see the tip of the iceberg of what we're going to be doing for our clients on the insurance side, where they have personal life insurance policies, the second to die, or business, we have a lot of business owners. So we're finding that there's more opportunity to really do more meaningful planning for our clients in that space than even before. And before... Candidly, it was actually really robust, but it just seems like the, the, it's just opened up for us to be able to service our clients better in a more meaningful way in that piece of their need. 
Yeah, thank you. That was a very specific answer. One of the better ones I've heard because there's tangible items that really do impact your clients. So it's pretty clear when you were pitching clients that there were many things that were in this transition for them that was in, in their best interest. How about on the on the downside? Obviously, there's no such thing as perfection. Is there anything that you miss from the wirehouse days? Maybe more so on platform and capability standpoint, rather than the like the culture and the the camaraderie of working in a branch office. I would probably have missed the camaraderie in the branch office, but given the fact that we are, and unfortunately, in the world we are today with the COVID world, we were working from home since March of 2020. So really going back to the office for us meant coming back into a space that we got to select. I rented a space that was larger than we really needed so we could put everyone in private offices and be very mindful of the world we're in today with the pandemic, but open it up to clients coming in with the right protocols in place. So really allowing us to take more control of how we want to operate as a team and as a business. But I will tell you that, yeah, camaraderie was always one of those things that I thought we would miss. But I will be the first to tell you that we don't miss it because we we didn't have it for a year. So it was not something we were missing anyway. We welcomed each other back when we all came back to them as a team. And we're here in, in the office full time, taking proper measures to make sure everyone's safe. And I think that's something that I thought I would miss, but ended up not missing because we didn't have it for the last year. So I would tell you my list of what I miss is very short, and I just kind of told you the one thing. I do tell you that the branch manager we had at UBS was a wonderful, is a wonderful person. The mindfulness of coming in and checking on us all the time, he always had, and he really respected our team as I did respect him. And it's sad not to work with people like him in the office anymore because they have a lot of wonderful people in that office. Their wholesalers were, uh, internal wholesalers were actually top notch. We have wholesalers here that we speak to. Uh, Some of them have overlapped, but not all. But those relationships are missed and they provided a value beyond just in the the world. But as you cut ties with the wirehouse world, sometimes you cut ties with some of those people that you leave in the wirehouse world but you make ties with new people. So we're very excited to continue to do that with the new professionals that are helping us with products and services that we can offer to our clients and educating us and and making sure that we're ahead of the curve on almost every regard of that. So we miss certain things, but we're placing that space within us with the new things that are coming our way with the RIA experience. Absolutely. And how did your clients react to the move? It's still very fresh. So I'm curious, roughly, what percentage of the business has moved over? And what were some of your clients' biggest reservations about following you in the first place? So we were blessed to have over 90%. I think the number is 94% of our clients that were working with us before working with us now. I think some reservations were a pause of what is an RIA? How does it operate? Who's Fidelity? Who's Summit? Who's Barden? So some clients... Because of our relationships, when we talk, reached out to them, we're ready to go and signed and immediately came over. Some clients took the opportunity to evaluate where they are with us, where they are with potentially some other options. And then, fortunately for us, concluded that they were with their best option, which was us, and then signed sometimes a few weeks later. There were some clients that were in the middle of a life event that couldn't transition immediately because they had to go through those life events, divorce or a passing in the family. So we waited and to honor and respect their time frame of when they could do that. And then there were some clients that just wanted to take some time to really understand where we had some clients, we had six different meetings to let them get comfortable. And this is what was always told to us. We're very comfortable with you and your team and each. We just want to get comfortable with the different experience that we are going to see going forward right? Which is, I have to give them that. It's a true statement. It's different. But then they found that the difference was really a better experience that they might see before from our end to service them and from their end to see it, right? So I think that that model was really eye-opening for them. And so we did get, I'd say, a fair amount up front, 60 plus percent, almost immediately within the first few weeks of the acceptance of moving. And then we worked on the other third and I think we are happy with 94%. I'm the kind of guy who likes 100. So you know, we still have a couple of irons in the fire for a couple of clients that we didn't move. 
But for the most part, we were very happy with the success. I will tell you, though, in the process of this move and having this conversation with clients and sharing and understanding, what was a nice surprise was the referrals that we got through those clients during this. And some clients saying, I was waiting for you to do this. What took you so long? And I quote a couple of clients who said that. I thought you would have done this a long time ago. You always seemed the kind of guy who would run your own shop. So those are the things we heard from our business professional clients who started to A, give us more of their wealth or B, give us more opportunities. I think we, in the last 90 days, have been exposed to about a dozen or more new referrals, some of which we've already, this morning before this call, I just closed one of them for, uh, it was a, you know, a seven-figure client. So I think that the traction has already kind of taken uh, itself going forward and the opportunities out there. So I think clients are interested. I will note that one referral that I told that I never was a client was I was prospecting for five years when I had let them know that I had left and here's my new contact and looking forward to connecting. We've had some meaningful conversations in the last couple of days, and it looks like they're going to pick us over the other three they're interviewing for for moving. And it's going to be a, a you know a very large portfolio, you know, eight figure portfolio. So I think this process has found itself to surprise us even. And so I, I my suspicion is we'll be ahead of where we left by the end of the year rather than at ninety four percent. We we look like we'll be ahead of the hundred percent mark. That's pretty incredible. Not everything comes over in a move, but ultimately you're you're locking down the clients who are your ideal future clients. And we talk often about the concept of shrinking to grow. So going from 100% to 94% isn't really shrinking. You did lose some along the way, but it's pretty clear it's been less than a year and you're already going to be beyond where you would have been by staying, which I think if most advisors could predict that or had certainty of the crystal ball, they would certainly make the move sooner. Yeah, Lewis, to your point, we've been calling our client base and working with clients that we've liked and enjoyed working with. If there were certain clients that perhaps we weren't the best fit for, we introduced them to other advisors along the way and made sure that they were comfortable. So we've been always of the mindset of always making sure that our platform is the right fit for the client and the right client was the right fit for us. So we've always had that mentality that we want to make sure that the client is not wasting their money and working on a platform that's just not servicing them properly. So we've always been in that thought process of making sure that the fit was always there for clients both ways. So I would say that we probably had a handful of clients that probably, like you said, we shrunk by a few percentage points, but we didn't have a lot to shrink to grow. Through my coaching in the past, I had done that a couple of occasions where we invited clients to work with other advisors that were probably more aligned with their needs. So we did take, uh, we did shrink in our past a few times. So my hope was at this point to truly hit the 80% mark of clients that we would bring over. I believe we invited, I'd say probably high 90s of clients a percent to join us. Uh, we didn't, we, I can't say that we invited all 100%, but we were resoundingly happy with our success rate. And, and fortunate and blessed to have our clients join us and continue our relationship with them. Yeah, it sounds that way. Two more questions for you. The first of the last two is, how has your lifestyle changed since going independent? So now, I mean, the transition period is probably wrapping up. So now that it's more steady state, what does a day in the life look like differently than when you're at UBS? And are you working more? And is your team working more? I would say my team has been, has, we went 21 days straight uh, when we first made the move. And then we were working six days a week full time. Then we went down to five and a half days a week. And then I listened to my, my team and they really liked the idea of working a little bit more during the weekdays and not on the weekend. So now we went to basically a longer day in the weekdays. So I would tell you that we're probably still working longer than we were before, but that's to be expected. And we'll, we'll probably continue to kind of shrink that, at least for the team, as we kind of go forward as, as we're, we're wrapping up that phase of transition, which I would say will probably be wrapped up by October. But I will tell you that my day in the life, I'm not a nine to five kind of guy. I have calls tonight at between 9 and 11 p.m. with other clients all over the country. I continue to do that and operate that way. I do feel 
that the extra piece of running, paying the bills to run the office, for example, we're renovating our office right now. To, we went through phase one just to get it reasonable for us to open our doors, but now we're getting to the way you know, we had the vision to enjoy it for our clients and ourselves going forward. So we're doing that now. So there's an extra piece of that that we're working on or I'm working on. But it's fun stuff. It's fun because I'm making those decisions. The colors of the office is the furniture in the office. Is I, some people may not enjoy doing that. I enjoy it. So I like the idea that it's really mine. And we're really, our team is really making the decisions for everything that involves our clients. And Summit's support on that is really impactful but it, it's an enjoyable piece. So I, I do have to find time now. So I learned how to find time of managing the office, paying the bills, working with a good bank to have it automated as much as possible. So I'm doing that myself. I know some people I've talked to in the RA world have people on their team that do that. For now, I wanted to do it to just have a true grasp of everything that's going into it. But I do feel that that's taking some time, but I would tell you that that's an extra maybe hour a week that's really taking time up. But I'm still working the hours I worked in the past, um, 50 plus hours a week, nights, weekends. I don't see myself slowing that piece of it down because that's just what I was doing before. But I do feel cognizant and mindful that I wanted to make sure my teammates were uh, and be more respectful of their family life. So we have we have toned that down a bit to uh, to their happiness, I should say. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it sounds like it, as a business owner, it's it's your choice to decide how much work you want to put in. So I'm sure if you wanted to, you could work less. But for you, just your personality and where your goals were, you have a certain vision for what you're trying to accomplish, and you're not going to stop at anything until, until it's achieved. You know, I have always told my team, people sometimes in our industry maybe slow down certain times of the year, like the summers, and they get, they go 50 miles an hour, and then they'll go 100 miles an hour sometimes. I told them we're, we're in a marathon, so but we're at 75 miles always. We want to overtake people and we want to make sure that we're growing, but we're also being mindful of making sure we're taking care of everything for our clients that their needs that they, they have as far as needs go. So that's why I like to overstaff and deliver more than we tell our clients that we're they're expecting from us. And we get the feedback and we get the referrals because of that. And I have to tell you that it's the, the credit to my team because they do really do put in the time and the energy. I'm getting emails on the weekends from them. You know, still, even though we're not officially working or they're not officially working on the weekends anymore, because it's not a job for them. It's a career. It's a, it's a part of a team that they want to be involved in and they are remunerated accordingly. They're all, we couldn't do this without all of us. We can't do it. I can't do it by myself. I couldn't do it without them. So it, it, they have to benefit in all the growth and all the success as a team that we're going to have. And they do. So I, I enjoy working with the people I work with. We have fun, but we also have a lot. We all have a very strict work ethic, but we never slow down. We have to make sure that we always know that we have this this timetable. We've we've talked to people in the other industries and say, well, why don't you take time off in the summers or why don't you slow down at this time of the year? We're not built that way, so we won't. <laughs> Last question for you. We alluded to, I think, part of the answer before. It's the question we ask everyone. If if you can do this all over again, what's something that you either wish you knew or wish you did differently? First of all, I think the feedback that I would say to that is that I wish I would have done this maybe a tad bit earlier in my career. I just turned 50 this year, so I still have a lot of runway left, but I would have loved to have been able to do this maybe five or six years ago and been able to capture more of the benefits for the clients that we're seeing there earlier rather than now. So that that would be something that I wish I would have done earlier. Uh, what I wish I would have known is, I got to tell you, we were pretty schooled in what to expect from Summit. We were told that crunch, I do think it was a very daunting 90 days when we moved. I do think that there was a, a lot of late nights and early mornings and full weekends, but I won't tell you that we were surprised by any of it. We were told that we would have some bumps in the road. It's to be expected. I talked to some colleagues that have done this in the past. They said, own it, move it, move on with it, and just walk through it. Your clients will understand. And they have. Our clients have been very, to some extent, surprising, you know, happy with our success, encouraging of our success, and, and wanting to see us do this and, and, and encouraging us along the way to continue that. So I, I don't see anything other than a regret of maybe not doing it earlier. 
I do think that we were told and advised what to expect. So we did feel it. And yeah, there were some days that you really just needed to take a breath. But for the most part, I think it's been a great experience. And we're still, like I said, at the tail end of it. So we're working through it. But I do think that I would encourage anyone who's thought about becoming more independent in their profession, especially in financial advising and being a financial advisor, is to really look at it really hard. It's, it, I think it's really right for a lot of people, but it's not right for all people. But definitely finding someone to guide you and, and give you the help of understanding what due diligence to do and mentally preparing you before you make the transition is very important. I think we don't have a lot of regrets because we were prepared and helped to get there. And that's why I don't think we have a whole lot of regrets. But doing it earlier would be something like, not like a few months earlier, but maybe five or six years ago, I think is my regret at this point. But we did it. So now we're moving forward. Perfect. Monish, this has been extremely helpful and instructive. And we're so grateful that you took time out of your very busy week, especially still relatively fresh in the transition to share your perspectives. So thanks again. I appreciate it. I appreciate you and your and your firm helping me along the path, providing a lot of the answers to the questions that I didn't have answers for. It's invaluable to have someone on your side to help be a sounding board for this. And you guys provided that. And I appreciate you and, and your team for helping me along that path. Thanks, Manish. Monique shares a journey that offers valuable lessons on how clarity of goals and vision can help lead you toward the right destination. And even when presented with what was an outstanding deal in the short term, he saw greater value and opportunity in the long term. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the articles link to browse recent topics. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, I'd be grateful if you gave it a star rating and a review. That will let other advisors know if it's a show worth their time to listen to. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.